Thank you, Jacob. It's good to be with you guys this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. If you have little ones, you'd like them to be in Children's Church, they can be dismissed right now. For the rest of you, let's turn in our copy of God's Word of 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you've been with us, you know we're in a continued study through 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. We're continuing today in our new section, verse by verse, through these passages relating and leading, in particular, guidelines for public worship and ministry to widows. And so let's look at verse 9 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to pick up right there. We'll read through verse 16 and we'll dig into what the Lord would have for us today. Continue in our in this study and, and on uh, Christmas Eve, of course, Christmas Eve Sunday, which is going to be a joy to be together, uh, we'll turn our attention to the first advent of Christ and spend some time reflecting on all of that. But a widow, it says, is to be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, verse 10, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, she's shown hospitality to strangers, she's washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she's devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11, but refuse to put younger widows on the list for when they feel sensual desire and disregard of Christ. They want to get married, thus incurring, verse 12, condemnation because they've set aside their previous pledge. Verse 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies. Talking about things not proper to mention, verse 14, therefore I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, verse 15, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Verse 16, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Let's stop right there. We've been looking at uh, verses 3 through 8, chapter 5 of 1 Timothy one of two letters penned by the Apostle Paul to a young pastor named Timothy who has been given charge of the established church in Ephesus. A large task, a daunting one, no doubt, one that was full of uh, potholes and difficulties. We've seen this as a church with a lot of things going on, but in need of some correction, of some redirection. And so this letter is addressed to the church. It's addressed, in, and we're still in the church age, it's addressed really to the church at Ephesus. So we understand as we do our context and, and understand our study and the Scripture's intent, it still applies to us today. We're still in the church age. So everything that we see, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, all this was given so the church uh, might know how to conduct itself in the household of faith. So what's supposed to go on in the ministry meetings that we do, how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do, who's supposed to lead. And, that, and the church is the pillar and support of the truth. And so it becomes really the foundation on which things are done. And so... That's really the context. It's how we've begun to translate it, understand it correctly. And as we've seen, one of the ministries to which the early church had given itself was the ministry to widows. And with all the background that we looked at, and if you've missed any of that, you can catch up on that on Spotify. But in the study we've done, helps us understand this ministry, which is so aligned with the heart of God. And we can easily say with all certainty that those people who name the name of God and identify with Him then should see this as an imperative to have the same heart for women and children that He does. But what we've also seen as we've looked at this specific ministry and how it's supposed to be administered, specifically in the church, that funds have to be set aside, time and, and, and administration to oversee it, and it's a legitimate and very important part of the ministry of the church. We've also seen that it gives us a much broader view of what life is supposed to look like 
Just like when we went through 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and we got to verse 1 and we moved our way through and we saw the requirements for those who lead the church become the example, one standard of godliness for how the church is supposed to function, how men in the church are supposed to function. And so it is the same with this. We see a requirement for widows and things that they have to have been a part of their whole life. But that ends up backing us into lifestyle choices and behavior as younger men and women. And so we're going to see this all the way through. And I think it's the broader understanding and application of a very specific ministry that helps us see what was supposed to happen up till now, which becomes the example for all of us. And the church at Ephesus had made a priority take care for widows and for orphans, but it had, had lost some of its discernment on how to go about this ministry. And so we've tracked the instruction of the Apostle Paul and, and what he's given Timothy in order to make sure that the ministry was directed to those who, were, who really needed it and, and to what Paul has called widows indeed. And that's exactly what he says in verse 3. And let's just back up. I'm going to give you about a four-minute uh, review to help you see where we've been. Because these all build on each other. And I think it's important to remember where we, what we've looked at. Paul says to Timothy, uh, specifically, honor widows who are widows indeed. He knows the church has been honoring widows. But he wants to make sure that they're the ones that should be uh, under the care of the church. Uh, that's the responsibility of the church to support true widows. a very simple principle. Uh, truly bereft, truly alone, truly without resource. And he's going to make that clear what that looks like in the next few verses. Because not every woman is in that situation. Not every woman is really in dire straits. And everyone likely has their own definition of who qualifies and who is deserving and what it means to be in need. And so Paul's going to clarify all those things. And Paul had helped Timothy deal with the situation by giving him a measuring rod, a list, if you will, of qualifications, of lifestyle choices. And so that's what really we see. And then in verse 4 we saw... Principle number four for widow care, uh, the family has first responsibility. Namely, uh, children and grandchildren have a responsibility to care for their parents and for their grandparents, in particular for those who no longer have a husband. And that's very, very important to understand that they're supposed to learn that responsibility first, and that's how they show godliness. And then we moved on to verses five and six, and this was principle number five in relating and leading for widow care. She must be a believer. And so it's likely in the church there were widows on the list who were make, receiving their support from the church who were not believers. So Paul makes this a requirement and he says she must be a believer. He says a number of things to help us know what that looked like. It says she has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and, and prayers night and day. And so what we see there is that, in other words, she waits for salvation with joy and full confidence. She fully trusts in God and her settled condition, of course, is alone and without means, but her settled attitude is one of full and complete hope and trust in God. And so from the positive side, that's what it's going to look like. And then from the other side, in principle number six, in leading and, and relating and for widow care, she must be godly. Now, of course, what it appears to the church is that she is. It appears that her hope is set on God. It appears that she continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But like I've told you numerous times, as you come to church, whatever persona you portray, that's probably the one people are going to assign to you. But that doesn't mean that's necessarily what it is because you have to look back at the home and find out what's going on there before you're really going to know whether or not someone's godly. You're going to have to look back on life choices. And this is what Paul is addressing to Timothy and saying to him that you're going to have to look from the other side. The life has to line up with what's being said and done at the church. And we saw then in verses 7 and 8, as we move past this, it wasn't only the children's responsibility to take care of widows, but we saw that men too are responsible to take care of and provide for the needs of widows that are in their circle. 
And so children, grandchildren, and also men are to provide for widows' needs. And in fact, not to do that is to be worse than an unbeliever and to deny the evidence of the faith. And so a very, very important point that we saw there for men that they have to be realizing what's going on around them and making sure as they have ability, they're taking care of the needs of those who have those needs. And then we see, we'll see in verse 16, really the last verse in this chapter, that women are supposed to do that as well. And so it's all the responsibility of family first before the church is burdened to take care of those who are in need. And then we move to verses 9 and 10. And I said to you that it's going to come in a rather rapid fashion now that Paul's helped Timothy have some general principles. And so in verses 9 and 10, he says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Verse 10, having a reputation for good works, if she's brought up children, if she's shown, shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she's devoted herself to every good work. And so as we read that, that uh, list, what we have here is what's left after some of the ascertaining of resources, which we've talked about, and and home support, and in general, godliness and godly habits over the long haul. So that weeded out some that were already on the list. And so this list appears to be the list of widows that would perhaps be totally supported by the church. But there's going to be some other questions that are asked now. And, and this last list of qualifications would likely pare down this list to actually those who would qualify as widows indeed to Paul's, from Paul's perspective. And we saw last time, verse 9 says, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. And what we saw there is this is really key, as they would or she would be unlikely to remarry. Now I say as a caveat, it doesn't mean that she couldn't remarry. She could. She could remarry. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, only in the Lord she can remarry. We saw just now in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 14 that they could remarry. And so it's not the matter that they couldn't remarry, but this has the idea and is connected to the list in this idea of service. So a widow is going to come. She's at least 60 years old. It's unlikely she's going to remarry. And they're going to be supported by the church. And they're going to be part of the ministry outreach of the church. And we saw that last time. That's really where we ended. And, and we saw that, that this understanding really comes as a continuation of scriptural teaching on singleness. What is singleness supposed to look like? And elsewhere in the Word of God, we looked at a number of places. Specifically, we looked at Paul's teaching to the church at Corinth. That chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, which is such a long chapter that has to do with remarriage and divorce and singleness and all those kinds of things. Very, very important passage in the Scripture. But we saw that to someone who is no longer married or who has never been married, that she is concerned or he is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy, both body and spirit. And then we saw from Matthew 19, and Jesus is teaching on the same topics on divorce and remarriage and singleness. We saw then again that there are some who voluntarily abstain from marriage. They're going to be single. And like what we saw in 1 Corinthians 7, they are willingly making the decision to remain single. They would affirm that the Lord had, had uh, given that gift of singleness now for the rest of their lives. And they're going to use it, mark it, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. It's always that way. They're going to use it for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So this is scriptural teaching on singleness that continues. And it's at the end of chapter 19 in Matthew, we saw that uh, the disciples realized how stringent the requirements for marriage is and how stringent divorce requirements were. They said, well, if it's that way, it's better to stay single. And Jesus says a very important thing. Not everyone can accept this statement. Some people can't be single. 
And that's not unusual because marriage is for most people. God has given a spouse for most people. However, to certain individual people, he has given the grace of being single for the kingdom of heaven. It's always for the kingdom of heaven. Singleness before marriage, never have been married. And singleness perhaps after marriage is a gift from the Lord, an ability to remain single and not desire that intimate relationship or that companionship that has been part of life. Now, not everyone can accept that. Only those to whom it's been given. That's what the Lord says to his disciples. And it's always for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So understand that this is the foundation that really underpins all of the New Testament teaching on singleness. It's always for the kingdom of heaven. Before you're married, your interests are not divided. After you're married, your interests are divided between your wife or your husband and the Lord. But before you're married, it's single devotion. And so very, very important not to do whatever you want, not to live however you want, to to do the kinds of things that uh, would not be honoring to the Lord. Singleness is given for devotion to the kingdom until the Lord sees fit to give you a spouse or give you the gift of singleness. And so here Paul is giving Timothy some instructions then to intervene and make sure what's going on uh, by way of the women who have been left bereft fits into the whole of God's plan in regard to singleness and their service in the church. She's going to be making a commitment to remain single and serve the Lord unreservedly, which is what those who are single or who have been given the gift of remaining single did and do. And so Paul says then, just to sum that up in verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she's not less than 60 years old. I want to make sure this is clear. The key idea is she's very unlikely to remarry and she's going to say, I'm not going to remarry. I'm making a commitment to the Lord to remain single and give myself to the kingdom of heaven. Because this is the important segue in verse 11 when we get to younger widows remarry because they've forsaken their first commitment. We're going to see that understanding very clearly if we understand what this one is. So the key is they'd be unlikely to remarry because connected to all this is the idea of service. They're going to be supported by the church. They're going to be part of the ministry outreach of the church. And, and then they are the unmarried then from 1 Corinthians 7. They are those who've made themselves unmarried for the sake of the kingdom, never married. And she is in essence saying that she's going to remain single, that the Lord has given her that gift. And so that was our principle number seven for widow care. Those supported by the church understand that singleness is an opportunity to give themselves totally to kingdom work. And she's old enough to hold that commitment. She's not going to be uh, tempted back into a relationship. She's not going to miss that kind of relationship. The Lord has given her contentment in this commitment. And so that's just really a continuation of that understanding. And it's going to help us understand verse 11 and following. And so the next qualifications then for those then are on the list. This is very important. Women who are truly alone, no family to care for them, So if this is a list then of widows who've been given the gift of singleness and have committed to using that singleness for whatever remains of their life for kingdom work inside the church, then we should see a list of qualifications much like we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3. For those who desire the the office of elder, they desire a good thing. And then we see a list of qualifications. For those who serve as deacons in the church, we see a list of qualifications. If those who serve as deaconesses in the church, there's a list of qualifications. Always that way. And so it's going to be the same here. It's precisely what we see. And that's not surprising. It's one standard of godliness, but there has to be some qualifications that, be the, that are the model for godliness then for those that they lead. And, and I think that there's a really great illustration of that kind of faithfulness. And that's what it is. It's really faithfulness over time. And that's what we're going to see here, uh, an established life of faithfulness. But I love this illustration, a true story. May 19th of 1780, 
place Hartford, Connecticut. On the afternoon of May 18, 1780, the sky was a strange yellowish color and the clouds seemed dark and heavy. The next morning, the sun came up deep red, barely visible through the haze, and until by noon there was a midnight darkness and people could not see. Men returned home from their labors in the fields. Darkness really stretched south from the Canadian border, covering most of Vermont, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. Uh, one of the documentaries of, of this whole time, Samuel Tenney noted, quote, the darkness was most gross in the county of Essex, the lower part of the state of New Hampshire and the old province of Maine. At 2 p.m. in Ipswich, roosters crowed, frogs peeped as if darkness had fallen. A witness reported that a strong sooty smell prevailed in the atmosphere and a dark sooty rain began to fall full of burnt leaves and ash. The first half of the night was hideously dark. No ray of light from the moon or stars could penetrate the darkness until after midnight when a blood-red moon emerged and by the next morning, dark ash lay along the banks of the Merrimack River in Newburyport, four to five inches thick. Now let's pause right there. True story, happened in the 1700s. You're there, what do you think's about to happen? Precisely the same thing that they thought was about to happen. Boston Independent Chronicle proclaimed, quote, a portentous omen of the wrath of heaven and vengeance denounced against the land. That's the, that was the newspaper in Boston. The immediate harbinger of the last day when the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light, end quote. An alarmed Boston resident sent her servant in the midst of the darkness to ask a local minister whether he thought the blackened skies portended some coming evil. The minister responded, quote, give, me, give my respectful compliments to your mistress and tell her I am as much in the dark as she is, end quote. The day has gone down as New England history as a terrible foretaste of judgment day. At noon, the skies turned from blue to gray and by mid-afternoon had blackened over so densely in that religious age, men fell on their knees and begged a final blessing before the end came. The black sky extended from New Jersey to Maine. Now, later, it was shown to be the result of a raging Canadian forest fire. Happened even back in 1790. Not related to global warming, by the way. Later, it was shown to be the result of that and, and turned the daylight to night. But during this time, the Connecticut House of Representatives was in session and some men fell down and others clamored for an immediate adjournment. But the Speaker of the House, one Abraham Davenport, came to his feet. He silenced them and said these words, quote, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there's no cause for adjournment. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty faithfully. I wish, therefore, candles be brought, end quote. And I love that. The reason why I like that is because that showed a lot of character on his part, a faithfulness over the long haul. Either the judgment day is coming or it isn't. If it's coming, there's not a thing, a thing we can do about it. But if it isn't coming, uh, let's just keep on going. But I want to be faithful regardless. And, and that's, very, that's very analogous to what we see faithfulness recognized to this day in history. And we've seen this principle all through the Word of God, faithfulness over the long haul. And we're going to see it over and over in our section in the type of woman that God thinks is great. And this is what we'll see in the character of women Christ chooses to represent him in the church and be his hands and his feet and his care and his love. So let's look at the qualities. I think you're going to see this now. Uh, ones she models for all women, just like those who serve as deacon or elder, model for those who are in the church as well. First thing it says about her is that she has been the wife of one man. And that's exactly the same construction we saw in chapter 3, just reversed order, a one man woman. 
It doesn't mean that she's only been married once because verse 14 says, I want younger widows to remarry. So it's possible she could have remarried. It has nothing to do with any of that. There's no sin there. 1 Corinthians 7.39, which we just looked at, he said a widow should marry again, but only in the Lord. But what it means, a one man woman, is a woman who is totally devoted to the man she was married to. This is the question. If she's going to go on the list, if she's going to represent the church in ministry and be an example to all women, then it's talking about purity of action and purity of attitude. She lived in complete fidelity with her husband. She was chaste. She was pure. She had an unspotted marriage relationship. Faithfulness, beloved, over the long haul. Faithful in difficulty. Faithful when she was unsure of the future. Faithfulness. And we identified that as principle number eight for widow care. Those who are going to be supported by the church, who will be serving the church, is a woman who is mature, a woman who's lived her life in a chaste way, faithful then to the husband that she had. And again, faithfulness as the choice over the long haul. The next qualification, having a reputation for good work. So faithfulness over time. And that having a reputation, present passive participle of the verb martyreo, that's where we get our word martyr. And all it means is this, it's a witness. Martyr means witness. So people describe her because that's the passive. She receives a good witness, that's the idea, from others. She is well reported then of good works. It's a common knowledge, the kind of woman that she is. She has a reputation for kalos, for excellence, for beauty. She's reported to be a woman of excellent character. And again, that's not surprising to us, is it? Uh, The elder has to be blameless, unable to be called out. Same with the deacon. They're to be men of quality, one woman, men, their households under control, their children walk in obedience. Uh, the elders to be without reproach, a deacon without reproach. So then it makes sense then if a woman's coming in with a commitment to singleness, she's going to be supported by the church, she's going to be doing ministry in the church, then that has to be a woman without reproach. And so for widow care, those supported by the church, on the list serving in a single-minded, single person as a woman who's noted among people for her testimony in the spiritual dimension, unable to be called out. And just like back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, where being above reproach was objectively defined, you didn't get to do it however you wanted to do it. It's the same here. So this shouldn't surprise us. Here's where Paul gives Timothy a, really a major and rod for being above reproach. And again, it's not an exhaustive list any more than 1 Timothy 3 was exhaustive, but it's a list, beloved, that's consistent with biblical teaching. Just one standard of holiness, which these widows model for the younger ladies. And we're going to see that very clearly in just a few minutes. She has a reputation for good works. So what are they? Good works over time. So here's the good works that Paul lists for Timothy to examine. So we can look at this as a profile of a godly woman, but it's not the only one. There are a number of ones we could look at. We could pull out individual women in the scripture, but here particularly is one of my favorites. You can look at Proverbs 31, anywhere along Proverbs 31, and see a profile of a godly woman, but just from verse 25, I love this. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household. And does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her. Her husband also and praises her saying, Many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. This is a godly woman that the Lord thinks is great. This is over time, character development, over time, 
deeds that she does, that she learned how to do, that she, it makes her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband does too. But more importantly, this is the woman God thinks is great. In 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 6, there's another profile of a godly woman. We've looked at this before. As Peter talks to the church, he says, your adornment must not merely be external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses. Not just that. It's not that you don't dress up. It's just not only that, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Mark this, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Even in difficult times, even uncertain times, this is a woman God thinks is great. This is a woman that models what it looked like before in the scriptures and continues to model that in her own home. And as we said this before, and I want to say this again, and because this has just so permeated the church, here's what you don't see. You don't see her called fierce. You don't see her called marching to her own beat. She can do anything that a man can do. No. She's independent. She's a strong-minded woman. No feminist slogans here. The woman God thinks is great, we can see. It has nothing to do with how the culture's permeated the church. Somehow thinking that these types of feminist slogans are what the woman is supposed to look like. This is a habit of faithfulness over time. You teach your daughter to be, you, you call her fierce, you call her strong-minded, you call her, she can do anything a man can do, she marches to her own beat. Then she thinks that she has this whole other persona she has to live out, but it isn't lining up with what we see here. It's a very familiar wording. Because she's focused on the right things. And so here's the five we're going to look at. And you're going to see how they just kind of harmonize with everything we just looked at. She has brought up children. Look at verse 10. Shown hospitality to strangers. Washed the saints' feet. Assisted those in distress. And devoted herself to every good work. Now let's look at the first one that Paul mentions as he talks about the fact that she has a reputation for good works. What are they? Not an exhaustive list, but they're going to contain these things that are very scriptural, very consistent with what we see all the way through the Word of God. First one is, she's brought up children. And here's where her godliness and her moral standards are really readily visible. What was the question? What was the product of her effort? And obviously, we're not just talking about bringing them up to adulthood making sure they had a nice car and, and the best school and whatever. It has nothing to do with any of that. The idea here is expressed by a very unusual word. It basically means to nourish children. This sees her as a Christian mother bearing and raising children in a godly home. And beloved, this is the greatest single privilege of a woman. And now as a footnote, just and we've said this before, but I just want to point this out. This does not mean that a woman who was not given the privilege of having children because she cannot, or a woman whom God has given, mark this, the gift of singleness, is in any way less. It isn't. She isn't. It's just that, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and Matthew 19, exalt a single person, obviously, and how they can be devoted to the Lord without the cares of the world that are brought about by children and family. The desire for children and family is for most people, and typically that's what happens. But there are those that the Lord exalts that are given the gift of singleness, which are still qualified, but they haven't been able to raise any children. So here's the question. If she has children, and this is the norm for most people, and the general principle is that when you're looking for a godly woman with an excellent, noble reputation, the first thing on the list is, has she nourished 
children? Has she raised godly children? That's the first question. That's always where spirituality is tested. And the idea goes right back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. If you remember this, we looked at this before, a woman will, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith, love, sanctity with self-restraint. If they, the children, as you raise them, if they walk in holiness, that's principle number 10. For widow care, those supported by the church, those are serving as single individuals. If she has children, the question is, are they continuing in the faith with love and holiness and self-control? Because if the answer to that is yes, then that's the kind of woman you want moving around the community giving instruction to your younger women and your younger wives. Just very, very basic, you see? When you're in the middle of it, you can't be around, going around giving instruction to other young wives. Why? Because the final solution isn't there yet. We don't know how they're going to turn out. But once they become adults, they walk with the Lord, then as a woman, you've raised godly children. They continue in the faith with love and holiness. That's the kind of woman you want walking around and moving around and doing ministry among the church because she knows what she's doing and she's modeled it already. And now that's the person you want teaching others. And we're going to see in Titus chapter 2 verse 4, very, very important, um, so that they may encourage the young women. So talking about older women there, they can encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. It's very, very basic. And so what we see here then, a long habit of doing this. They got taught early on as a young woman, as a daughter, a young daughter, that this is their highest calling and they're moving through that faithfulness over time. And what does that produce? It produces the right outcome. Do you see? And the older women are to teach them. And the younger women are to teach their daughters and become conformed to this if they weren't taught this before. And here's the next one. She's shown hospitality to strangers. And you know what this means because we've looked at this at Hebrews 13. We do on a Super Bowl Sunday, uh, Hospitality Sunday. It's commanded of every believer, but here she has received strangers. If she's opened up her home, that's the idea, and maintained hospitality to people. Not to people she knew, but to people that she didn't know. And this is Aorist Indicative. And always Aorist Indicative is always a snapshot of the past. And guess what? All five of these... Aorist indicative. What does it mean? Over time, in her history, as she walked with the Lord, this is indicative of her life. That's the idea. And you can just see a trend here. And that gives us principle number 11 as we think about widow care. Those supported by the church as single-minded, single people, hosting in her home with sacrificial devotion the needs of people she knows and those she doesn't know. And again, Hebrews 13.2 just remind us this is one standard of holiness because it's required for all of us to do that. And so this next one then follows the same path. She's qualified, Paul says, if she has, here it is, washed the saints' feet. Now in ancient times, you're probably aware of this, it was the duty of a hired help or someone in, in, in the servant's uh, capacity to wash the dirty, dusty feet of people who wore sandals. So you can remember, you can be, you can imagine what that was like on a, on a rainy day like today or our long journey and not the most pleasant of duties. It's a menial, humble task. But here I think it's important to recognize that it doesn't mean that this is what she did all the time. But what it shows is she has a humble heart. And again, Aristotle indicative, it shows that this was a habit of her life. 
is what she did throughout the course of her life. But again, one standard of godliness, if you remember John 13, Jesus is at the table with his disciples. What does he do? He gets up, he girds himself, and what does he do? He washes their feet, and in verse 15 he says, For I gave you an example, you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor one who is sent greater than the one who sends him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. And, and is it just as simple as washing feet? What was Jesus showing? If you're going to lead, you're going to lead by servanthood. If you're going to lead, you're going to lead by doing humble things. And that's, that's the idea then as you get into this next principle. A woman who's qualified to be on the list will be a woman who, if she saw a person who had a need, no matter how humbling that need was, her normal response was, she humbled herself to do it. And that was the course of her life. That's not surprising though, is it? Because that's what we're supposed, all supposed to do, to serve one another. A kingdom upside down. So here's the character of a godly woman. This is a woman who has raised godly children. This is a woman who's opened her home to the care for people who were in need. This is a woman who has done the most humble, menial service rendered to someone else. She spent her life helping people. Service at personal inconvenience. Service with humility. No, no prominence, no self-exaltation, no, uh, no somebody recognizing, hey, look at what she's doing. She just does this. This is her habit. And the next one is no different. It says, if she has assisted those in distress. And that word distress is the word for pressure. We've looked at it before, Romans 5. Literally, a narrow place. Those under pressure, mental pressure, physical pressure, emotional pressure, whatever kind of pressure. This is a woman who has assisted, it's aristactive again, of the compound verb, eparcheo. Epi is on and archeo is contentment. And the idea is, assisted them to the point where they were content. They're in a pressing pressure, a word usually used of squeezing grapes or olives. They're there and she is able to minister to them in that distress and it is the habit of her life, a snapshot of the past, all these qualifications in that sense, voice, and mood for widow care. This is going to be a woman who has helped or assisted or provided strength for or solutions for people who are in trouble or under pressure. That was just her, that's just what she did. And so the question is, has she spent her life as the situation warranted being a solver of problems? a helper of those who are struggling. Uh, that might include money. Uh, that might have been counsel. It might have been resources for life. It might be meals. It might be guidance. It might be help during sickness. It could be all kinds of things. Uh, was that the habit of her life? Did she spend her life on those things or did she spend her life and her time on herself? Was her mantra, love yourself first and then you can love everyone else? Take care of yourself and make sure you're the one who is most important. See, those things make their way into the church. They, they fall foul of what the scripture has to say about what godliness looks like. One standard of godliness, see. You, and you can notice here, beloved, here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say anything about where she went to school. It doesn't say anything about where she worked or what her wardrobe looked like or how fancy her home was decorated or what a great chef she was or a, mu a musician or an athlete or how much money she brought in or any of the other things that people think are important. It just talks about the reputation and the beauty and the wonder of her humble, gracious spirit of service. If she was given children, are they godly? 
Did she host people who were strangers to her in graciousness? Did she take care of those in need? Did she relieve people who were in trouble? See, this was a habit of her life. Do you see? It's broader than just this measuring rod for how the church puts people on the list. It, what it reflects is a habit of godliness, one standard of godliness. This is what a godly woman looks like. This is, what, this is a woman God thinks is great, see? And husbands, let me just say this. You put them in that position, okay? If, they, if they're not... If they're not given the gift of singleness right now and they're married to you, in your love and your care and you're washing them with your words and, and making them more radiant and more glorious, you do that. You understand that? You shouldn't be their number one ministry. Like taking care of your needs because you're the biggest child in the house shouldn't be the case, okay? You can't clean up after yourself. You're always doing things that are embarrassing. Listen, that's not it. Love her like Christ loved her. Love her like Christ loved you. Love her like Christ loves the church. And you'll put her in a position where she can give herself to the things that she needs to give herself to. You see? And then over time, she begins to build this godly heritage in her own children. And in people around her, they rise up and call her blessed. They recognize she has faithfulness over the long haul, even difficult times. That's what it's supposed to look like. And so this is that reputation of beauty and wonder and humble, gracious service. And finally, it says this. If she has, it says, devoted herself to every good work. And this is really the bookend, really, that just follows the first half, a reputation for good works. And then we see the bookend on this end, has devoted herself as the idea of to happen along with, to happen at the same time, to accompany literally along with these other things as she's lived her life, you see. As she's lived her life, she has done all these other good works. So the list is not exhaustive. Gives us our next principle. Number 14, to be on the list will be a woman who has spent her life doing these kinds of things, doing good things, and this, this doesn't even come close to all she actually does day in and day out. That's the idea. She has given herself to good works. We haven't even listed them all here. You know, I would just tell you, men, you probably know this. Your wife gives herself, if she, if she is that kind of woman, she's been giving herself to good works all day, things you don't even know about. She's taking care of things. She wasn't even thinking about somebody recognizing her. That's the idea. And that's her testimony over time. People recognize she's just been giving herself to good works. There's a lot of things not listed here that get done when godly women apply themselves to ministry. And so then when she gets to this point and now she no longer has a, a provider, a supporter, a protector, she's bereft of all that and she comes to the church and she says, hey, the Lord has given me this gift of singleness. I'm not going to remarry. She's over 60 years old. And the church says, okay, you know, we'll put you on the list and we'll take care of you fully. And she gives herself. This is the kind of woman you want walking around in your church community. She spent her life doing all that. Put her on the list. Send her out. There's no downside. One standard of godliness. This is the kind of woman who makes the list. This is the kind of woman every woman ought to be and desire to be and market, want to raise their daughters to be. Okay, this is it right here. It's not hard. It's just basic. Lots of stuff has made itself into, made its way into the church. This is a priority for a woman's life. And I would just say this, beloved. It's a travesty that the world has made its way into the church and convinced parents and young women to be some other kind of woman besides this. Because this is the one the Lord thinks is great. And there are lots of illustrations about this. And I'm just, as we close, we're out of time. So I'm just going to give you a couple and we're going to close out. And I think you'll really enjoy these. Acts 9.36, one of my favorite um, stories in Acts. And 
And it's a, it's a great illustration, and you've probably read it, but now in light of what we just said and how we looked at this history of what faithfulness looks like, I think you'll read it with a new appreciation. Listen to it. It says, Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is called Dorcas. So there's a woman there in Joppa. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. Did you catch it? She was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. You know what it doesn't say? She lived in a big house. She was very wealthy. She had a good reputation uh, amongst business, businesswomen. No. What does it say? She abounded with deeds of kindness. That's precisely what Proverbs 31 says. Kindness is on her lips. She abounded with them, and just to be clear, with charity, and she always did it. So that was her habit over time. She's headed in the right direction, I would say, right? Wouldn't you? And it happened at that time that she fell sick and she died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Verse 38. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. And so Peter arose and went with them. And when he arrived... They brought him into the upper room. Now mark this, beloved. And all the widows stood beside him. Who stood beside him? Who is the most important concern here in the story? All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. Now, everything that you know up till now, that's a pretty significant story now, isn't it? You understand that widows and those without fathers are in, that's the heart of God. We understand that Tabitha here, she gave herself constantly to good works. But specifically, who was she ministering to? Widows. And if you read the rest of that story, which I'll let you do on your own time, do you know what Peter did? So great. He raised her up. And here's what it said. Gave her back to them. Why? Because... The Lord's heart is always on the husbandless and the fatherless. And this is the kind of woman the Lord thinks is great. Faithfulness. Enshrined forever in the Word of God. In a simple story that perhaps just falls in the cracks most of the time when people are reading through. Recognize though even today, when we read it with the right heart, and we understand what her, what her job was and how long she did it and what she gave herself to. But guess what? Same words used of everyone. One standard of godliness. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Where are we going to find that behavior listed for us? So whatever you want to do. The Lord says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Right? This is love. That you keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Over time, over the long haul, faithfulness. So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Someday, over the long haul, they're going to look back and they're going to see that even though they slandered you and they made fun of you and they thought it was stupid what you did and it didn't make sense, they're going to see over the long haul what? A, a course of life, a standard of behavior, a faithfulness over the long haul that makes the Lord look great and they recognize that what you did was right. You see? It's the same for everyone. It's not just Tabitha. It's not just the ladies in, this, uh, in our section here in 1 Timothy 5. It's everybody. But these ladies become an example for that. You see, to our younger women. 
Titus 3.8, this is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Paul tells Titus to this church in Crete, speak confidently about that. Those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Is it important? Of course it is. These things are good and profitable for men. Not just for the church, but for those that they do the good deeds to. You see? It's a long habit of faithfulness. Because here's the question. Do you think that the Lord wants less from his church than he wants from the godly women who were the example to it? Of course he doesn't. Do you think he expects a pattern of good works and resemblance for those who have his name? Of course he does. Of course he does. And so what we have to do, and as we think about all of this, this is a lot, and I know I gave you a lot, but what we have to do as we think about this, we're thinking about more than just this narrow ministry in which the church has to be involved. This is not even wiggle room. We have to think about what it looks like over the course of life. How has she lived her life? This is what faithfulness looks like over the long haul, you see? And then when you get to 65 or 60 years old and, and the Lord has taken away those things that used to support you and you come before the church, there's an established pattern and people can talk about it. They know who you were. There's godliness there that lines up with everything else we see about godliness and a singleness and a single-mindedness about serving the Lord and making commitment to do it. And what a joy that is. And when you send those kinds of ladies out and when they're involved in your church, that's, that's a huge blessing. When they've, sh- when they've shaken off what the world thinks is great and when they've put away all these, all these slogans and feminist things that make them think that they're supposed to be something else and they realize their main jobs are right here and this is how women of old lived and the Lord thought they were precious and he thinks the same thing about you when you do it, see? And if you're an older lady, make sure if this hasn't how you've been living, you start living that way now. And if you're a younger lady, it's time to change directions if this is not the course of your life, see? And then you come into a position where you're going to be able to share with the younger ladies how to live, how to love your husband and love your family and love your, uh, love your house. What a joy that is. Let's bow. Let the Lord kind of work his way through our own understanding here. Lord, we thank you today for just the benefit of your word, for the joy to be in it, for uh, how much broader our understanding can be as we see a, a pattern of life, as you, as you word it here, a snapshot of the past which shows us how they live. This is the model for us. Thank you, and I just want to thank you that we have many women here who are like that. It's a joy to me to see it. They, they don't seek attention. They're not doing things so that people will recognize it, but they're faithfully doing what they're supposed to do and have done it for a long time, and you haven't ignored any of that, and their reward is great, and the blessing to the church is huge, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for our younger ladies who are in the middle of it, and can't serve as an example to other younger women yet because they're not done. But when they're done, Father, I pray that they'll find the product of their hands, which will be godly children walking in obedience. So we thank you for that. And we thank you too, Lord, that all of this is so that the word of God is not dishonored. It has more to do with the testimony of the gospel than anything. Our, our obedience is more than people saying, wow, they're a really good Christian. It has to do with making the gospel look good making Christ and the transformation that we claim look real. So, Father, by your Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll help us. Fill us with the Spirit. Empower us. Help us work inside the gift set you've given us and everything by the fruit of the Spirit. And, Father, as we see this example, help it to be ours. Raise up another generation of young ladies who understand these principles, which are a blessing to our community, to our church. Pray all this in the name of your son Jesus and for sake. All God's people said.